Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Monday, March 13th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And at the Academy Awards last night, Brendan Fraser won for the whale, and his acceptance speech started with a whale of a metaphor. I'm grateful to Darren Aronofsky for throwing me a creative lifeline and hauling me aboard the good ship, the whale. And he continued upstream to thank the writer. That was written by Samuel D. Hunter, who is our lighthouse. Then he surfaced briefly to spout off about his co-star. I wanted to tell you that only whales can swim at the depth of the talent of Hong Chow. I don't know if this was to be considered an extended metaphor, uh, the deepest commitment to wordplay I've ever seen, but it was, it was quite glorious. I liked the commitment. It's been like I've been on a diving expedition on the bottom of the ocean and the air on the line to the surface is on a launch being watched over by some people in my life. The members of the Writers Guild hearing it certainly said, okay, no threat from this guy. Because you got to wonder about actors, you know? Sometimes they turn into Sarah Polly. First of all, I just want to um, thank the Academy for not being mortally offended by the words women and talking, but so close together like that. Who wins the Best Adapted Screenplay Award last night. But Brendan, I think the only whale-like breaching was of etiquette. You laid your whale-sized hearts bare. But I could be wrong. Maybe the Fraser method i.e. interweaving the title, maybe even the theme of your movie into all your thank yous, that's pretty great. And if that had been established practice all along, we would have gotten some great best acting Oscar speeches in the past, like a couple years ago, when Rami Malek won for Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, I, I, oh my God. My fellow nominees, you can do the Fandango. Bradley Cooper, you were magnifico, oh, oh. Willem Dafoe, Thunderbolts and Lightning, Christian Bale as Dick Cheney, very, very frightening to me. A little further back. The winner is Marlon Brando's On the Waterfront. You know, on the waterfront, you find many treasures. Ilya Kazan, you were my safe harbor, my port in a storm. Lee J. Cobb, Rod Steiger, unlike so many waterfronts, you were without peer. And much like a quay wall, you cinematographer Boris Kaufman, you provided grounding and ballast. I got one more, one more. Indulge me. Thank you. As we did, Brendan Fraser. 1961 winner, Judgment in Nuremberg, Maximilian Schell. So I starred in Judgment at Nuremberg. You have rendered judgment unto me in Tinseltown. We tried at Nuremberg, Walther Funk, Germany's Minister of Economics, Wilhelm Frick, Reich Minister of the Interior, Hans Frank, Hitler's lawyer, and before this award, to be frank, I was in a freaking funk. But you gave me not the death penalty by hanging, but life, sweet life. <laughs> On the show today, okay, wait, wait, someone, this is great. Someone actually did this before Brandon Fraser. Coolest guy in Hollywood history, Jack Nicholson, wins for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, starts with this. Well, uh... I guess this proves there are as many nuts in the Academy as anywhere else. <laughs> All right. On the show today, Whale Watch. This one's real whales dying. Why? We'll get into it in what's turned out to be a theme show. But first, for 15 years, 
Eli Honig was a federal and state prosecutor, and one of his big assignments was to go after members of the mafia. He brought over a hundred of them to justice. Now, as a former federal and state prosecutor, he's on CNN. He's often asked to talk about Donald Trump and his legal issues, and we will get into that today. We'll talk about grand juries. We'll talk about the Georgia case. We'll also talk about his podcast and his new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, Ellie Honig up next. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say, I don't want to make this too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we kvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. There is a possibility of earning a nice upper middle class lifestyle if you are a former prosecutor willing to hang out your shingle and interpret every legal development as regards Donald Trump as the most dire thing, as an unconscionable violation of law and morality. Ellie Honig does not do that. He is a former federal prosecutor, but when you see him on CNN, he is among the few that will tell you, yeah, I just don't think the evidence gets there, or that may seem horrible, but until we know the facts, we can't jump to conclusions. In writing and podcasting for the Cafe Network, he's also one of the few who will say, hey, I wanted Donald Trump's tax returns, but not this way. Even if there is someone who is out there saying, Donald Trump has done unconscionable wrong. If that person is a questionable source, say former prosecutor Mark Pomerantz, Ellie Honig will call him out. That's why I appreciate him. Plus, he's out with a new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. He also has a podcast with Cafe, in addition to his uh, regular appearances, uh, that talks about the mob It is called Up Against the Mob. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me, Mike. I I appreciate that intro. For a moment, I was recoiling. I thought you were going to say I was one of those people who... who, Just anyone, just a regular guy. Walls are closing in. Walls are closing in. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) Exactly. Other shoes to drop. How many shoes are out there? It's like... Like a footlocker's work. It's never been my approach. It's never been my style. I I decided from day one that the audience would be best served and I would be best served by calling it straight. And as as you know, I don't have a dog in the race here. I think Donald Trump has done bad things, probably criminal things. But I also believe that the way that some people have pursued him is way over the line and in some instances borderline or maybe more than borderline unethical and in some instances self-defeating. So I, I call it out. That's what I do. 
It's hard not to, and I want to get to much more of the substance of the book and the podcast, but it's hard not to because in Trump, we're dealing with a person who does lie and does lie so often and so blatantly that a temptation is, and maybe the, you came up against this as a former prosecutor or when you were a prosecutor, this guy's lying. So if we take the negation of what he's saying and consider that the truth, maybe we could get a conviction. Maybe he's telling us that he did it, but that's not always the case. And people lie for motivations other than that I'm covering up and actual crime. Yeah. I mean, look, lies can certainly be powerful evidence. They can show evidence of consciousness of guilt. People lie for all reasons. I'm not going to make an excuse for Trump. What, what I have a problem with is what I consider improper, unethical, or ineffective pursuits of Donald Trump. And you named a couple there. I mean, look, Letitia James. I know the people who want to see Donald Trump suffer are have been applauding her from day one. But I wrote a piece. I've said on air on CNN, Trump actually uses this clip sometimes. I said, her pursuit, the AG's pursuit of Donald Trump is political. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. I know that. She we all know that's a it. fact. She, she campaigned on yeah. it, not just once. This was the main theme of her campaign. She fundraised on it. These and that's are not ipso facto. That does not ipso facto disqualify any prosecution that stems from that office. I mean, she can still prove that he committed misdeeds, but sorry, I interrupt you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. And, and that's what I say. I say those two things can both be true. She can have a meritorious case. Not, It's not a criminal case. It's a civil case. And she can have acted inappropriately. And I say in my piece, you know, whenever I point out that I object to her campaigning on vote for me and I'll go after so-and-so, it's not an answer to that to say, but her case is a good one. Those are two totally separate things that can both be true. And I'll just sort of polish off this point with this. If anyone is okay with Letitia James running for attorney general of the state of New York, the way she did saying vote for me and I will nail Donald Trump and his family, you also then have to be completely fine with a person running for attorney general of the state of Delaware on a platform of vote for me and I'll nail all the Bidens. I'll get Joe Biden. I'll prove Hunter Biden. If you're not okay, you can't be okay with one of those, but not the other. And it's not an answer to say, but one's true, one's not. First of all, we don't know yet about Hunter Biden fully. Second of all, even if everything's true, it doesn't mean you can go about this person breaking all the rules and being unethical. Tell me about, just explain to me as a legal expert, the specifics of the grand jury proceedings in Georgia, the special purpose grand jury. I know we saw the bizarro mediator from Emily Kors, who was quite reveling in her position as uh, having being discovered as the new the head of the grand jury. But so what is, is there an equivalent in federal law of this special purpose grand jury that doesn't indict but does investigation? There's not really an equivalent in federal law. I guess you could use a grand jury that way, but but no, this is something that's unique to Georgia state law, where the DA impaneled a, quote, special grand jury, which all they can do is indict, excuse me, opposite, all they can do is investigate, they cannot indict. So for the last seven months, the DA has been putting evidence in front of this special grand jury, which quite clearly, you don't have to be like a tea leaf reader, has recommended an indictment of Donald Trump. But ultimately, it's up to Fonnie Willis. And if she wants to indict, she'll take it to a regular grand jury and she'll get an indictment. Um, and I think that's likely, not definite, but quite likely to happen. Now, it's important a couple things to keep in mind. First of all, if she does indict, and I say this every time I mention this, if there's an indictment out of the DA's office in Fulton County, there is a world of difference between an indictment and a conviction. And the DA's office is going to have a major uphill climb to turn that case into a conviction. Forget about even the quality of the proof, which I think is okay. It's there. 
you're going to have constitutional challenges. You're going to have real challenges with the timing. The fact that Fonnie Willis, like Merrick Garland, has wasted two years. By the time you try this thing, it's going to be best case scenario, 2024. You're going to get 12 jurors unanimously to convict a guy who's in the midst of running for president. Maybe, maybe, but you're making your job hard. The other thing about the special grand jury is this four-person, Emily Kors, her media tour has completely, not just undermined, but reversed the entire purpose that Fonnie Willis, I believe, had in impaneling this grand jury. The reason I believe that she went through this extra step of the special grand jury is to be able to point to them and go, look, everyone, this very careful, deliberative, neutral, impartial body in a very serious and sober manner. Citizens, citizens just like you or me. Yes. Yeah, consider the evidence and and they came back to me after all of that and they said, we think you should indict. So therefore, when I indict or now that I've indicted, we have the backing of this very serious, smart, impartial group. Instead, all anyone's ever going to think of is Emily Coors, which is quite the opposite of all of those things. What is the, as you, as far as you know, what is the timing on Fonnie Willis and bringing the indictment? So we don't know. She told the judge a couple, more than a couple weeks ago now that decisions were, quote, imminent. People ask me, is that some legal term? I say, no, it, it means soon. And it means whatever Fonnie Willis thinks is soon. But um, I do believe it's, I guess I can't say anymore. There's, there's a weird wrinkle with speedy trial laws in Georgia where essentially the best time, the most likely time to bring an indictment would be at the start of every two-month grand jury period, which we're actually in now. There's a new grand jury starting in March, March 1st, or whatever, maybe, maybe this Monday, March 6th. And then there's another one coming in in May, and then another one coming in in July. And for tactical reasons, it would be smartest to do an indictment at the beginning of one of those two-month periods. So if I, I will say, like I was hearing buzz that it was going to be now, like the beginning of March, which could still be, but I also just read the New York Times did a piece the other day where they casually drop in their um, decisions. Indictments could come as early as May, which would be the next period. And by the way, I, I circled that as early as, talk about generous reporting. Who early? We're two and a half years out. There's nothing. Early would have been May of 2021 when they could have done I didn't this. realize there was a so, grand jury season, like there's an opera season. or a There is, season. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I do want to get to how the book is structured, which is you talk about your experience with prosecuting the mob and mob bosses, and then you weave in this uh, culturally dominant figure who operated in many ways like a mob boss, that being Donald Trump. But how, where did the mafia go in strength from when you started? started as a prosecutor to by the time you left that office? Clearly declined and not because of me. Part Well, a little part because of me, but <laughs> I won't take full credit. Um, you know, the mob was at its heyday, I guess, of, of violence, really in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and then in the 90s. Uh, that would be the, the, the sort of prime time for the mob, uh, certainly in terms of the mob wars and, and the killing and the murders. But the mob is like any other industry. They have to, and they do, evolve with the times. And as they lose certain rackets, they pick up other rackets. And, and um, I'll give you a couple big things that have changed in recent years. One is sports gambling. They used to make a fortune off of bookmaking. Now you can, anyone can go on their phone and go into, I don't want to put in a plug, but we all know that the easy you know, gambling sites, that's legal everywhere. And uh, that has largely pushed the mob out of that money-making entity. Um, the other thing that they've done is they've really reduced the levels of violence. Now, in the podcast I do, that was a spasm of unbelievable violence. But really, since then, 
they don't kill many people. And the reason why is it's just bad for business. If they kill someone, that's where murder charges happen and that's where people flip. And that enabled us, when I say us, I mean prosecutors and cops together broadly, to really make major dents from 2000 or so through 2015 because we charged all these murders, we flipped all these guys and that really helped us take it down. But I should say this, Mike, the mob is the exact same size now that it's always been. Uh, you can't, there's, there's a set number of positions, made guy positions in each of the five families. Usually it's about 120 to 150 per family. Somebody literally has to die for a position to open up. Uh, and when that happens, there's 15 guys that want it. It's like, I sort of joke, it's loosely like when a, uh, becoming partner at a law firm. Whenever there's a spot open, there's 10 guys vying for it. And um, you have to, you know, so th the families do not ever lose membership. They are, they always keep that same level of, of, of size and membership. How do they maintain their... Uh, hooks in the industries that they have without the credible threat of violence. So you're right. They, they need that threat. They need to, if that fear were to just completely evaporate, they would not be able to take over labor unions, to shake down strip clubs, to extort the butcher or to extort the corner bakery. Um, and so they do have to maintain that fear factor. And so what I would say is there's still a very natural fear factor. These are scary guys, and we've all seen the movies and TVs and <laughs> TV shows and perhaps listen to my podcast. Um, they will still beat people. I mean, look, they're, they're not a nonviolent organization. I, I, have, uh, I have learned that it is possible to use the phrase baseball bat as a verb. Um, some of the, a lot of these guys, if you talk to them, they'll go, well, he baseball batted that guy, and then I baseball batted this guy. Um, so they will still hand out beatings and they've actually done the fairly, look, these mob guys sort of understand more than sort of, I'll, I'll tell you a couple stories. They understand the law and they understand. I've had cooperators tell me, oh no, we give a guy a hospital beating. Cause you guys can't really do anything about that. That'll just be an assault case. That's 18 months if you get caught. But if you murder someone, that's life. No one flips on an 18 month case, but everyone, not everyone, but far more people flip on a murder. These guys, I'll tell you, one of my favorite recordings that I ever had an informant make was he was wearing a wire and the guys are sitting around talking about somebody who's been convicted in New York. And they're going, well, now he's going to appeal. It's the second circuit court of appeals. I'm like, oh, they're right. And then someone goes, no, it's the third circuit. And then the other guy goes, no, the third circuit's Philly. The second circuit's New York. I'm like, wow, this guy's better than a law student. And they're like, the second circuit's really tough on defendants. The third circuit's a little better. I'm like, okay, these guys are going to teach an appellate seminar here or something. <laughs> <laughs> I know they really do understand the law. They understand police procedure. They understand uh, having, having a crash car, you know, for the getaway car. If you stage some other distracting accident because of the police procedures, they have to go investigate it. They they are, they are sophisticated, and this gets us to one of the things they do is they insulate their leaders. So that's the parallel, or that's the analogy to Trump. How far do you take it? I mean, obviously, the C CEOs of companies who are breaking the law are insulated, so there's a non-nefarious aspect to this. So how far does the analogy apply? Yeah, and you, you know, Mike, it, it's become uh, sort of fashionable to say, oh, Trump operates like a mob boss. I see people say this all the time. I will say at the risk of tooting my own horn, I am uniquely qualified to make that judgment. And in the book, in Untouchable, I, I do draw specific parallels. Um, there is a lot of truth to that. And I, I referenced the scene from Goodfellas, which is very dead on accurate, That this scene in particular, 
where uh, Paulie, the boss, uh, played by Paul Sorvino, is at the barbecue scene. For a guy who moved all day long, Paulie didn't talk to six people. If there was a union problem or, say, a beef in the numbers, then only the top guys can meet with Paulie to discuss the problem. Everything was one-on-one. -on -one. Paulie hated conferences. He didn't want anybody hearing what he said, and he didn't want anybody listening to what he was being told. And that is exactly consistent with the way real-life mob bosses operate. And as you said, Donald Trump certainly had this understanding, a lot of CEOs. And some of that is not nefarious. Some of that is not necessarily evil, but it's just the design of any bureaucracy, any hierarchy. But one of the benefits, the smart bosses who are, and I'm going to limit this to the criminal ones now, the ones who are doing wrong, know that the fewer people you talk to, the fewer people who are out there talking, the fewer people who can flip against you, the ones who can and do flip against you are criminals in their own right because you've brought them into your crime. So if they ever take the stand against you, you're going to just say, this guy's a filthy criminal who has every incentive to lie. Um, smart bosses like Donald Trump also know how to go right up to the line of saying it but not quite saying it. And I have a chapter on this. I tell a story. I open the book with a story about a murder we did. A murder, let me rephrase that. A murdered case that we did. <laughs> Important distinction. Where we charged everybody who was involved on the streets, the shooter, the getaway driver, the crash car drivers, all that. But we couldn't quite get to the boss who happened to be the victim's uncle, by the way. We knew he had to be involved. There's just no way logically, mathematically, scientifically in the mob, you could kill this guy's nephew without his permission. And this we was find- was the guy who was killed in Springfield outside his Camry? No, this is a different, okay. this is Frank Heidel. Okay, Frank he was Heidel. killed at, at the strip club, outside the strip club in Staten Island. Right. And his boss was this guy, Danny Marino. Uh, Danny Marino was in prison and they sent someone in and he said to Danny Marino, hey, your, your, your nephew's a rat. I don't like that word, but that's the word they use. And Marino said, are you sure? And he said, yeah. And then Marino said, do what you gotta do. And that's it. We charged him based on that. And look, do what you got to do can mean anything. It can mean beat him up. It could mean make sure and get back to me. But we charged it. And I don't want to give too much away, but I talk in the, in the book about how the result of that case is not one of my more glamorous results that I'm super proud of. And I, I say that and I say in the book, this has been a conundrum for me. How did the, the most powerful guy in that case get off the lightest? And if you look at Donald Trump, for example, he's very good at making his will known to his people without quite saying, I need you to commit a crime. Look at, you know, arguably what he says before January 6th. We're going to be there. We'll be wild. We're going to show strength. I mean, look at the dozens and dozens of defendants who've been charged, who've said, the people who stormed the Capitol said, I thought he was telling me to go in there and do what I did. I thought he was telling me to go in there and smash the place up. Michael Cohen uh, took a plea because he lied to Congress for Trump about when Trump was trying to build in Moscow. And Trump, uh, Cohen later said, did Trump tell you, he was asked, did Trump tell you to lie? And Michael says, candidly, um, no, that's not how he operated. He, but I knew what he meant. He said, I, I heard you got a subpoena. We didn't do anything wrong. And I'm sure you're going to do the right thing in there. That's not tell, quite telling someone to lie. But Michael said, but I knew what he was saying. So there's a real parallel there. Yeah. Cohen said that under oath, uh, testified for that. And you know, what's interesting to me is Trump got himself in the most ongoing trouble when his indirect directives were rejected, which was the, will someone rid me of this troublesome priest with Comey? And Don McGahn and others wouldn't do it. So he was pressed to actually do the firing that led to the Mueller investigation. Yeah, no, exactly right. I mean, that's th those 
thankfully for Donald Trump, I say in my first book, he's lucky that certain people were not willing to carry out his orders. But that's what sort of uh, drew the most attention to him at first was his firing of Jim Comey. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about a moment where we're sort of all, all hell broke loose, I would certainly point to that. Ellie Honig is a CNN senior legal analyst. His podcast, Up Against the Mob, is produced by Vox Media and the Cafe Network. His new book is Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Thanks so much, Ellie. That was great. Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate it. And for Pesca Plus subscribers, an extended cut of the Ellie Honig interview is available. If you wish to subscribe, you can get an ad-free version of The Gist or one with extended interviews and bonus features. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. UMEs are afflicting the whale community. UMEs are unusual mortality events, or as the New York Times put it, asked really, why 23 dead whales have washed up on the East Coast since December. Save the Whales was a kind of synecdoche for environmentalism itself for many decades. In the 1970s, the slogan was everywhere, including the 1974 movie Up in Smoke with Cheech and Chong. Save the Whales! And there was an entire Star Trek movie with saving the whales as its theme. Here's a clip to give you some idea of the tone. This is mankind's legacy. Whales hunted to the brink of extinction. Virtually gone is the blue whale, the largest creature ever to inhabit the earth. Despite all attempts at banning whaling, there are still countries and pirates currently engaged in the slaughter of these inoffensive creatures. Where the humpback whale once numbered in the hundreds of thousands, today there are less than 10,000 specimens alive. Grim, and the latest news seems no better. So that New York Times story about the dead whales was subheaded, another humpback whale was spotted dead late Monday floating near a shipping channel between New York and New Jersey, the 13th whale found in the two states in three months. Local prosecutors questioned a suspicious orca. Yeah, it wasn't me. I don't know anything about it. Stick it in your blowhole, copper. But in all seriousness, in all solemnity, and also to step away from my award-winning voice work as the orca, as the Gambino crime family orca, let us consult Yale Environment 360, which is a publication of the Yale School of the Environment, the East Coast whale die-offs unraveling the causes. Activists are blaming a recent spate of humpback strandings off New York and New Jersey on seismic exploration by offshore wind companies. But scientists say the deaths are not unusual and are likely due to increased ship traffic and entanglements with fishing gear. Well, even the scientific explanation doesn't seem benign. It points the finger, or maybe flipper, at mankind itself. And the World Wildlife Fund offers studies which lists the leading cause of whale death as just what you heard there. The same thing as the leading cause of the Silicon Valley Bank explosion. Entanglements, specifically when whales become entangled in fishing gear. They list the number two cause of death, opioids. Number three, falls. We never think of that, do we? Fish, ocean, mammals. They don't really have to worry about falls. Just not a thing in their world, huh? But 
like those scientists say. No, it has nothing to do with the wind farms. Ship strikes. Ship strikes are killing a lot of these whales, which seems like really bad news. It certainly is for one of the struck whales and probably most of the people on those ships. But actually, it's not terribly bad news. So first, we have to accept the North Atlantic right whale population from this entire picture. That still is a very threatened population. The North Atlantic right whale is a type of baleen whale. But before they spun the North Atlantic right whale off as its own thing, if you just counted it as among the baleen whales. Baleen whales have actually made a very good recovery. But to just look specifically at our friend, our endangered friend, the North American right whale, still a bad situation. They say fewer than 400 left. And it might be about that type of whale that messages about saving the whales are still addressing, like this one. There lives our mightiest ally in the fight against climate change, tending vast floating rainforests that are a vital support system for all of life on Earth. Greta Thunberg. And someone needs to replenish her oxygen. No, wait, that's not right. Here's who the whale and dolphin conservation advocacy group really is referring to. They are climate giants. They are whales. They need us, and we need them. And even with these unusual mortality events noted in New York and New Jersey, even with all of that, what we have done for the whales is remarkable. Acknowledging what we did to the whales for centuries before that wasn't nice at all. But the picture is in 1970, humpback whales were listed as endangered. And you heard that stat from the Star Trek movie that was 1986. Well, now some countries have actually removed the humpback from their endangered list. That's how much the species has thrived. The U.S. has different types of populations, different pods that they grade as threatened or endangered, but most of them are not threatened or endangered, and officially the humpback whale status is listed as under the least concerned among the threatened species. The Organization for the Rescue and Research of Cetaceans does a whale census. It's just in New South Wales. Don't want to confuse you. That's part of Australia, spelled differently, the two whales. But 30 years ago, these whale watchers would observe 300 whales in their census. These days, 33,000. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature, its official body that applies the status levels to species, says there are 84,000 humpback whales today. In fact, the best explanation for the unusual events is that there are so many whales, some are bound to be hit by ships. It's sad, but unavoidable. Although they are whales, you'd think the people on board would, I don't know, have better radar. Whale can't really sneak up on you, can it? But in general, I say... That even though headlines are about unusual events and pictures are about dead whales on beaches, we generally did a really good job. You know what we did? We saved the whales. Not all of them, but more than I think we had reason to believe was possible. Good job, humanity. Now can we get word out about uglier creepier animals. For instance, the giant flightless darking beetle, an endangered insect that occupies dead trees in the Seychelles. Let's get Captain Kirk and Cheech on this one. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's producer. 
and Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is vice president of charitable giving for Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.